Okay, hello, thanks for coming. Welcome to this session on monetary modernism. Um, if any of you don't know me, I'm Rob Hawkes and I'm Senior Lecturer in English Studies at Teesside University up in Middlesbrough. Um, and I'm also a member of the Executive Committee of, of BAMS, the British Association for Modernist Studies. Um, and I'm joined here by Scott Ferguson and Maximilian Seho. Um, so before we get into our kind of main main discussion of, of monetary modernism, um, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for for this conversation. Um, first, by introducing you to uh, Money on the Left um, with, uh, as a project, and then by <clears throat> suggesting some ways in which um, its hopeful perspective on money might contribute to the conversation we've been having at the conference about uh, hopeful modernisms. So Money on the Left is a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics. And it's the official podcast of the Money Modern Money Network's Humanities Division. Uh, it's hosted by William Sass, along with Scott and Max here. Um, and it's presented in partnership with Monthly Review magazine. Money on the Left um, also comprises a website, a journal, the uh, wonderful superstructure podcast and publishing vertical, alongside uh, other interrelated podcast series, including Processions, which was a set of fascinating close readings of passages from writers from Dante to Frederick Jameson that Max recorded uh, last year. Um, Natalie Tavsmith and Charlotte Tavan's brilliant series, Medium Femme, which explores underappreciated feminine and queer modes of knowing in left culture and political economy. Uh, modern, moody, modern, modern Movie Theory, which analyzes film and television texts from Avengers Infinity War to the HBO series Euphoria and Bo Burnham's Netflix special Inside. Um, and most recently, Will Beeman's Projections, which is a series responding to recent political events in what uh, Will has described himself as uh, hope-adjacent ways. Um, so all of the above now are known as the, the Money on the Left Extended Universe. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so if, you, if you've not heard of this, then, then check it out. There's, there's, there's loads of amazing stuff to listen to and read. Um, um, so the, the project was originally launched, the, the, the Money on the Left podcast started in 2018, um, and I was a little bit late to the party. I, I only kind of first discovered it and started listening in 2019, I think. Um, but it immediately had and continues to have a really profound impact on, on me and on my ways of thinking about money and on my scholarship, uh, which focuses on literature, money and trust in late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so after discovering the, the, uh, the, the project um, and being inspired by all the, all the really exciting work that they're doing, um, I got in touch with the editorial collective and uh, I've since made a couple of modest contributions to the project myself. Um, but what brings us together um, for, for uh, the session today is a sense that our conference topic of hopeful modernisms and the vocal concerns of the Money on the Left project speak to one another in some really interesting and significant ways. Uh, on the one hand, the conference seeks to challenge a persistent view of modernism as relentlessly bleak, pessimistic, and angst-ridden. And on the other hand, Money on the Left offers a hopeful perspective on money's creative potential that counters the standard interpretation of money as, at best, a necessary evil, and at worst, just plain evil. Um, Another important connection is a shared interest in the word modern. Uh, since money on the left draws principally on the neo-chartalist understanding of money that underpins what's known as modern monetary theory, or MMT. Um, and just in case that's, um, th th these are not terms that you've encountered before, um, I just wanted to kind of offer a very brief introduction to MMT, after which then each of us is going to present a kind of case study designed to situate these ideas in relation to modernist texts, which we hope will open up some exciting new ways of thinking about hopeful modernisms. So, uh, coined, definitely pun intended, um, by the German economist Georg Friedrich Knapp in The State Theory of Money, um, which was published in English translation in 1924, but uh, first published in German in 1905, so right in our, in our modernist period of interest here, 
Um, the term chartalism is based on the Latin word charter, and it refers to the understanding of money as a state-authorised ticket or token and as a creature of law. Um, Knapp's work is one of the important sources of inspiration, although it's by no means the only one, for the school of thought known as neo-chartalism or modern monetary theory, MMT, which has emerged within the field of heterodox economics in recent decades. Very broadly, and I'm going to just keep this brief uh, in the interest of time, although there is much, much more I, I could say and we could say and maybe we'll get into uh, later, the central claims, claims of MMT are that money is a public utility. Um, and the logical counterpart to this claim um, is that money did not originate in or develop out of private exchange or barter, which is kind of the, uh, the, the standard explanation that you get in economic textbooks um, and, and the way that money emerges. And, and <clears throat> also that this publicness is of really fundamental importance to, to today's um, discussion. Um, then, sorry, money uh, is crucially a social relation. It therefore isn't a thing, and it's a social relation importantly founded on credit. Um, and finally then, what follows from these kind of theoretical claims is that a government that issues its own currency can always fund public spending um, and doesn't need to borrow or tax first in order to do so, and it can never, ever run out of money. The really important thing for the, the three of us, I think, um, is that we think this perspective has some really profound um, and, and profoundly hopeful implications for the way that we think about literature and about culture and aesthetics um, and for work across the humanities and we really want to see this um, conversation today as, um, as if you like an invitation to, to join this conversation um, and, uh, and yeah, hopefully we can be in that after we've um, presented our thoughts. So, uh, without further ado, I'll, I'll pass it over to Scott. Well, again, thanks Rob for the, for the wonderful uh, introduction, and thank you all for coming. Uh, today, I've titled my talk, Rainbow Dance, Animating Public Money. Again, m always multiple puns intended here. Um, so I will begin. In Rainbow Dance, an avant-garde promotional film produced for the British General Post Office in 1936, or GPO, artist and animator Len Lai evokes the virtues of postal banking by means of an abstractly layered and multicolored choreography. The film stars celebrated group theater dancer and director Rupert Dune and pulsates to an up-tempo Tin Pan Alley Roomba titled Tony's Wife, recorded by Rico's Creole Band. Throughout Rainbow Dance, Dune performs a series of stylized quotidian actions involving far-flung social practices and locales. The dancer's strobing and multiplying silhouette comes and goes. Yet the real hero of the film is arguably Lai's laminous and rhythmic collage and the broader publics it convenes. Here is a small sample from the film's opening. kicks into high gear, but I'm stopping it here and we'll sort of work through it as we go. Uh, so released through both 
uh, commercial and non-commercial channels during Britain's Great Depression, Rainbow Dance sits at the intersection of myriad modernist sensibilities. In cinema, in particular, these sensibilities range from the rapid contrapuntal editing of Soviet montage, the non-representational animation pioneered by Weimar-era absolute films, Lotte Reiniger's ornamental cutout techniques, the macabre and erotic practices developed by Dada and surrealist films, and, of course, the melange of documentary and experimental impulses cultivated by John Grierson's GPO film unit, whence Rainbow Dance arises. At the same time, however, Lai's film also gestures in a very different and hitherto overlooked direction. As I read it, Rainbow Dance singularly embraces the abstractness, the publicness, and the heterogeneous plentitude of both postal banking and avant-garde cinema. Conversely, it mocks the assumed imminence and finitude that impoverish dominant conceptions of modern money as private exchange and modernist visuality as self-standing sensuous encounter. In doing so, I suggest, the film's hopeful, even exuberant modernism marks a promising, if unwitting, departure from canonical and critical art histories, particularly when it comes to accounts of abstraction. Indeed, despite Lai's problematic self-understanding of his works as conveying physical vibrations or movements per se to the so-called old or primitive brain, Rainbow Dance harbors more capacious and far-reaching topologies of abstraction, long foreclosed by liberal come Marxist conceptions of universal equivalence, as well as by visual modernism similarly austere preoccupations with removal, reduction, and autonomy, whether as an achievement or as failure. Advancing an alternative approach to money and aesthetics, as theorized by the Money on the Left editorial collective with which I collaborate, I want to disentangle Rainbow Dance's latent political and formal implications from Lai's authorial intentions. In an effort to radically reimagine relations between monetary and aesthetic abstraction, for public projects, past and future. Money on the Left, as some may be familiar, draws upon the insights of the increasingly well-known and hotly debated school of political economy known as Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT for short. A synthesis of chartalist, post-Keynesian, institutional economics, and several other heterodox economics traditions, MMT contends that money is not a private and scarce exchange instrument that evolves from unmediated barter relations, but rather is a contestable and expandable governance project built upon inescapably public foundations. As an emanation of political and legal organizations, money enters into circulation in MMT's analysis through government authorization and publicly chartered banks and financial institutions. It does so, moreover, in the form of a hierarchy of recorded credits and debts or written promises to pay. Recognizing money's status as a productive system of writing in addition to a mode of governance, MMT scholars thus tend to eschew the hydraulic metaphors and other terms borrowed from the natural sciences, which, as Philip Morawski documents in his book More Heat Than Light, strangle the history of economics and regularly constrain the financial industry, journalism, and public policy. Repressing the generative inscribability of monetary systems such language naturalizes a host of painful austerities and trade-offs by figuring money as a finite quantum of value and its orchestration as so many evacuative flows. Most important and controversial is MMT's approach to taxation and fiscal policy. On MMT's argument, taxation 
qualitatively anchors and drives money's broad political and legal architecture as opposed to quantitatively financing government expenditures. For this reason, MMT concludes, fiscal policy is limited only by prevailing politics, resources, and know-how, and not by past or projected government receipts. For MMT, in other words, money is no zero-sum game. Deepening MMT's insights about money for interdisciplinary media studies, the Money on the Left project insists that all forms of mediation, including money, entail primary, multiscalar, and variegated forms of coordination for indelibly interdependent communities and environments. With this, we reject modern nominalist assumptions embedded in both mainstream economics and much critical media theory that see mediation as secondary or super added to, an in, to a primary individuality or particularity. It is in this sense we submit that mediation ought to be characterized as abstract. Mediation abstracts not because it literally draws away from a pre-given individuality or thisness, such as the contracted conception of abstraction that pervades nominalist modernity. To the contrary, mediation is abstract because it inscribes and moves interdependencies that know no absolute border or externality. If, according to the term's etymology, abstraction can be said to draw away, then it, it does so, we claim, by animating eco-social coordination at a distance, not by volatizing or estranging a preceding individuality, materiality, or difference. This reconception of abstraction matters, on our view, because it, is, it not only furnishes more holistic accounts of systemic injustice that refuse to reify austerity and exclusion as historical givens, but also renders money and its supporting media answerable to public action and experimentation in unprecedented ways. Still, to actualize this potential we maintain demands rethinking art and culture where money remains vital despite critical claims to the contrary, and abstraction is too often contracted to tropes of imminent removal, reduction, and autonomy. Hence my interest in Rainbow Dance. Read through the eyes of Money on the Left, Lies film appears to break with certain mainline visual modernisms in and beyond cinema on a number of accounts. First, Rainbow Dance is thematically about money's rich public dimensions and capacities, sidestepping modernism's false dialectical oppositions between aesthetic autonomy and monetary estrangement. Second, the film reflexively joins the pleasures and possibilities of experimental animation to the social and sensuous potentials of monetary abstraction. Third, Lies animation actualizes and extends public money as an aesthetic project. Financed by Her Majesty's Treasury and provisioned by the GPO Film Unit, Rainbow Dance does not merely promote pre-constituted facts about the affordances of low-cost public banking. It substantively carries out money's coordination as part of a multimedia process of publicity and participation. An impressionistic tour through Rainbow Dance should bear out the above theses. The film foregrounds abstract animation's fertile and enigmatic topos from the start. Early in the film, for example, a hand-drawn spinning asterisk alights upon Dune's energetic and ever-transmuting silhouette. Registering no direct contact or force, the event nevertheless recasts the film's featured player as a second sparkling asterisk which momentarily joins the initial figure in a dancing duet. And I'll show you, it's a very fast clip. It takes longer to describe than it, than it is to watch.
Indulging the film's uh, myriad visual puns, we might say that Dune fleetingly ascends to animation's astral plane, inscribing his live-action movements within a broader choreography of abstraction. If this is transcendence, then it remains collectively mediated, not an escape to freedom or some external beyond. It is instructive to compare this initial reading of abstraction and rainbow dance to modernist animation theories propagated at the time by the likes of Sergei Eisenstein and Walter Benjamin. As Marxist animation scholar uh, Esther Leslie details in her book Hollywood Flatlands, such writers extolled the liberatory and dialectical plasticity of animated figures, lauding the anti-capitalist impulses they uncovered in Hollywood cartoons. In Rainbow Dance, by contrast, Lai consistently toys with the fact that Dune's shape-shifting silhouette remains a function of animation's wider mediating breadth. As such, figural animation in Rainbow Dance blithely circumvents dialectical dramas of freedom and constraint, as well as zero-sum oppositions between figure and ground. A beat later, Dune's rightward leap generates a, a colorful series of action poses, reminiscent of Etienne-Jules Marais' 19th century chronophotography, in addition to Marcel Duchamp's New Descending a Staircase number no. two that Marais' plates later inspired. Here's that moment. <laughs> For students of Marais, chronophotography signals the anxious indexicality and instantaneity traditionally associated with the signifying functions of photography's material substrate. For followers of the historical avant-garde, meanwhile, New Descending a Staircase represents Duchamp's early endeavor to set cubism's multi-perspectival figure in motion before promptly shifting to what Thierry de Deuve has described as the ready-made's nominalist insistence upon naming this urinal or this bottle rack as anti-art. In the case of Rainbow Dance, however, composited backdrops flip rapidly between grassy hills, an ordnance map, and mountain peaks, while Dune's leap proliferates into a mobile chromatic array. Rather than a nervous registration of contingent bodies in motion or an unconventional designation of sensuous particulars, the film's rainbow leap construes abstract animation as a remote and divergent gathering, where figures remain non-identical to themselves and specific forms and moments hang together in intoxicating patterns irreducible to any punctuated here and now. Before long, Lai's backdrop shifts yet again from live action ocean and beach shots to an exaggerated drawing of a hyper-angular tennis court. A backdrop without a perceptible or stable background, the paradoxical court parodies geometric perspective and its contracted material horizon of motion and depth. In the same breath, it ropes the austere flatness lauded by de Stiel and other high modernisms into a layered and voluminous Milliers-like theatricality. Here, Dune begins to spin himself as well as a racket in response to solarized pink, blue, and yellow dots crisscrossing the screen. The dots intermittently admit details, denoting tennis balls and a racket head, but mostly the dots zip about as frenetic superimpositions that flout any direct physics of force and motion. As a consequence, Rainbow Dance preemptively derides the Disney Company's emerging squash and stretch style of animation, which is today often emblematized by the gravitropic finitude of the bouncing ball. When the backdrop is subsequently replaced with an apparent score sheet, Lai's film begins to draw significant, though deliberately tenuous, correspondences between the abstract dots, the recording of game points, and money as a form of writing. Upon further inspection, the sheet appears to be arranged as a financial ledger, which has the effect of analogizing ball play, points scored, financial accounting, and of course, animated drawings. 
Strengthening these connections further, the drawn dots suddenly seem to deposit British coins rendered in stop motion along the ledger's outer edges. Then, when we, turn, when we return to the tennis court in a subsequent cut, the scene's formerly blank ground is now filled with coin, making money the foundation for Dune's dancing play, not to mention for the home that also newly appears in the mise-en-scene. The result not only situates the broad dynamics of abstract inscription and coordination prior to the creation or movement of physical coinage, but also links the unlimited writability of point-keeping in sport to financial inscription and the social production it underwrites. There is a tendency in scholarship about Lai's work to see Rainbow Dance's final explicit pivot to postal banking as either unrelated to the abstract experimentation that precedes it or as a last-minute submission to his financier's nominal assignment. A closer examination, however, reveals more integrated motivations. The film's closing sequence begins with a promise announced by the invisible masculine voiceover, quote, post office savings bank puts a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you. As the voice speaks from off screen, we see that a, little, a literal rainbow that initially appeared above the Palace of Westminster at the start of the film now reemerges in the shape of an abstract halo surrounding an official post office savings bank book. It is perhaps no accident that five years after the collapse of the interwar gold standard, the aforesaid gold is never shown, remaining as metaphorical as the scene's diaphanous rainbow. Finally comes the ad slogan. Quote, no deposit too small, the post office savings bank. Thus, Rainbow Dance ends by expressly framing po postal banking as a non-discriminatory public service for banking the unbanked. An exceptional contribution to European modernism, Rainbow Dance today stands as an exhilarating countermodel to neoliberal austerity, privacy, and violence. Though rarely stated outright, neoliberal regimes turn upon a contracted metaphysics of abstraction, which treat money as a private and finite thisness, and its collective animation as contiguous displacements that threaten to drain value away from allegedly hardworking taxpayers and toward variously gendered, racialized, or foreign others. In this vein, the British government has several times reorganized, renamed, and privatized the Post Office Savings Bank, justifying such measures with toxic falsehoods about the alleged dangers of public deficits and the efficiencies of competitive markets. To dream and build otherwise, scholars of modern art and culture would do well to take inspiration from Rainbow Dance and the still underdeveloped topos of abstraction it makes perceptible and actionable. Thank you. I now want to offer some thoughts on uh, Nella Larsen's 1929 novella, Passing, and Ford Maddox Ford's 1933 novel, The Rash Act. Uh, so prior to its publication, Ford described The Rash Act as quote, the beginning of a trilogy that is meant to do for the post-war world and the crisis what the Teachings Tetralogy, also known as Parade's End, did for the war. So for Ford, at least, the Rash Act was up there with one of his very best works, and it was also very specifically about what he was calling the crisis, the, the depression and the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. Um, incidentally, I've got the... Um, Netflix film tie-in book cover of, uh, of Passing, which was uh, written and directed by Rebecca Hall, who starred in the TV adaptation of Parade's End, so it all ties in. Um, <coughs> the novel tells, uh, the Rash Act tells what is in some senses a very simple story and in others a very, very complicated one. Uh, it's complicated in that it's a, a typically Fordian, time-shifted, impressionist and fragmented narrative 
from another perspective, though, the Rash Act is a simple kind of prince and the pauper fairy tale in which uh, Henry Martin Alwyn Smith, an American who's been bankrupted by the Wall Street, cr Wall Street crash, and, uh, and Hugh Mugton Allard Smith, so they have the same initials, uh, a British millionaire, switch places after both plan to commit suicide, the rash act, on the same day. While Hugh succeeds in killing himself, Henry fails but sustains a blow to his face which, along with the fact that the two look very similar, enables him to assume the other's identity. Passing, which is also a fragmented modernist narrative containing hermeneutic gaps and time shifts and multiple ambiguities, is one of the most celebrated uh, novels of the Harlem Renaissance. It tells the story of two African-American women, Claire Kendry and Irene Redfield, both of whom are light-skinned enough to pass for white. While Irene only does this occasionally, Claire is married to a wealthy racist white man called John Bellew, who does not know and would not take kindly to knowing that she has, in the novel's own terms, Negro blood. Uh, importantly, Claire, we learn, started passing in the first place to escape from uh, poverty as well as from racism, so both novels involve characters who take on or create new identities, and in both cases this act is inextricably tied to money. Uh, so with this in mind, uh, I just want to draw a few then connections between these two texts and also then this, the, the, the neo-chartalist perspectives on money that we've, we've already been uh, talking about today. So first though, I want to turn to uh, Madhu Doobie, um, who points out in the, the Cambridge Companion to African American Women's Writing that racism in the 19th and early 20th centuries was grounded on sado-scientific claims of biological difference between the races, claims that are voiced by, uh, by white male characters in novels such as Iola Leroy and Passing, who boast of their infallible ability to detect the telltale signs of black blood even in those who appear to be white. Both novels expose the absurdity of such claims and the arbitrariness of the one-drop rule. Um, and the moment that, that Doobie's specifically referring to in passing, um, for any of you that don't know the novel, is, is, um, or novella, is, is one of the really most memorable and shocking scenes in, in the text, I think. Um, so in it, Claire asks her husband, uh, what difference would it make if, after all these years, you were to find out that I was one, I was one or two percent coloured. And uh, Bellew, her husband replies, uh, using a racist slur that I'm not going to repeat here, he says, I know you're no N-word, so it's all right. I draw the line at that, no N-words in my family. Um, and as Juby highlights here, therefore, Bellew is voicing and reinforcing an understanding of race that's tied to blood and to biology, as, as distinct from appearance, in fact, and it's one in which uh, the family is positioned figuratively and um, it is positioned figuratively as both a vector for the transmission of inherited essences and as an embattled space around which a firm line must be drawn. So I draw the line there, he says. Uh, jumping from one form of racist 19th century sado science to another. Um, this is, from, so in 18, this is from 1887, so jumping back into the, the 1880s, um, an article in the Contemporary Review um, where the American journalist, economist, and civil servant David Wells argues vociferously against something called bimetallism, which was a really hotly debated um, idea at the time, and it was basically about introducing a dual gold and silver uh, monetary standard as opposed to a monometallic gold standard. Um, and there was like a parliamentary commission in the 1880s around this and um, lots and lots of fierce debate. Um, but Wells rejected this, so in his, in his rejection of bimetallism, he says this, by a process of evolution as natural and inevitable as any occurring in the animal or vegetable kingdom. I didn't know there was a vegetable kingdom, but okay. Um, gold has come to be recognized and demanded as never before in all countries of high civilization as the best instrument for measuring values and effecting exchanges. And I think there's several really interesting things that are going on there, but first, first of all is this, is this claim that gold money was arrived at by a, by a natural and inevitable 
uh, even a biological kind of process. Um, in this sense, then, as it's not unlike um, this, the concept of race as imagined by Victorian imperialists. Um, second, Wells refers to gold being recognised in all countries of high civilization as the best instrument for measuring values. And if, if it's still not clear kind of what, what the implication is there, um, elsewhere in the article he goes through uh, the, the idea that um, the kind of money that a country uses depends on whether it is, quote, savage, semi-civilised, civilised or enlightened. And those at the top get gold, you have gold standard, those at the top get to use gold, the less civilised use silver, and the kind of lower down the, the evolutionary ladder, copper and, um, and, and so on. Um, furthermore, this understanding of money begins with and depends completely on um, what's already mentioned, been mentioned a couple of times, the, the, what neo-chartalists refer to as the barter myth, which imagines money's origins in, in some kind of, kind of primor primordial marketplace in which traders start to recognise the inconveniences of bartering and exchanging goods directly, and then eventually they seize on precious metals, and then eventually after that, by Wells's evolutionary process, uh, they settle on gold as the best. Uh, as a basis for a kind of more efficient alternative to bartering. However, as uh, the MMT economist Pavlina Cherneva explains, this, quote, view of money emerging as a medium of exchange to minimise transaction costs, the transaction costs of barter, finds no support in the historical record. It's basically there's no evidence that this ever happened at all. Um, so next, I want to turn to... Um, Bloomsbury Group member, John Maynard Keynes, and to this passage from A Treatise on Money. <clears throat> um, it was published in 1930. The state, Keynes says, claims the right to determine and declare what thing corresponds to the name of money. And to vary, this, to vary its declaration from time to time. When that is to say, it claims the right to re-edit the dictionary. It is when this stage in the evolution of money has been reached that Knapp's chartalism, the doctrine that money is peculiarly a creation of the state, is fully realised. So he's referring directly to the Knapp's state theory of money that I, was, I mentioned earlier on. Thus, he says, the age of money has succeeded to the age of barter as soon as men had adopted a money of account. And the age of chartalist or state money was reached when the state claimed the right not only to enforce the dictionary but also to write the dictionary. Today, all civilised money is beyond the possibility of dispute chartalist. Um, so that's as I say, Keynes is endorsing Knapp's state theory of money, declaring that all money is beyond the possibility of dispute chartalist. So this view that, that money is a public creation by, by the state. Um, and that's to say that money is not something that has to be dug up out of the ground, but it is a product of human creativity, if you like. It's, it's, uh, and this is kind of captured in the image of the, of the dictionary that the, the, that the state reserves the right to, to, to re-edit. On the other hand, what I, what I find really fascinating about this passage is the way that some of the language, so the mention of evolution, for example, uh, or of civilised money, um, or <coughs> the idea that the age of barter, uh, sorry, the age of money succeeded to the age of barter, reveals what I think of, of tensions in Keynes's monetary modernism. So all at once, it's committed to the sort of innovation and to creative reimagining of money, and yet simultaneously, it's repeating and reinforcing some of the same problematic rhetoric that we've just seen animating Wells's deeply flawed and, as I've argued, basically racist monetary politics. So, with all this in mind, um, I now just want to turn back to Larson and then in a moment to Ford and to note ways in which both of their texts contain what I think are actually some of the same tensions. So this is from uh, the second chapter of Passing as Irene and Claire discuss the, the, discuss the, the idea, the topic of Passing for White. But you've never answered my question. Tell me honestly, haven't you ever thought of passing? This is uh, Claire asking Irene. Irene answered promptly, no, why should I? And hastened to add, you see, Claire, I've everything I want, except perhaps a little more money. At that, Claire laughed. Of course, she declared, that's what everyone wants, just a little bit more money, even the people who have it. And I must say, I don't blame them. 
Money is awfully nice to have. In fact, all things considered, I think really it's even worth the price. I think this is, that's really interesting because there's, there's, there's clearly a link, a very direct link between, between passing, between, um, between this kind of changing identity and, and money, um, and the act of, the act of passing uh, on, a, on a kind of more basic level has enabled Claire to, to get all the things that she wants in life, what everybody wants, she says, but it also entails a cost. All things considered, it's even worth the price. Um, but there's also a sense, and, a, and, and this is a question that the book more broadly uh, explores in other terms uh, throughout, really, that, that passing dis destabilizes the categories and the hierarchies that both race and money have hitherto functioned to hold in place. On the very next page, though, Claire is described in the following terms. Claire Kendry sat with an air of indifferent assurance about her clung that dim suggestion of polite insolence with which few women are born and which some acquire with the coming of riches or importance. Claire hadn't got that by passing herself off as white. She had always had it. She herself had always had it. Just as she'd always had that pale gold hair and the eyes were magnificent. Ah, surely they were negro eyes, mysterious and concealing. Yes, Claire Kendry's loveliness was absolute beyond challenge thanks to those eyes which her grandmother and, her, and later her mother and father had given her. Now, there's a lot more I think I could say about this, and because time's short, I'll just note that despite the novel's critique of race and exposure of its performativity, Claire is described here as having a kind of inviolable, uh, inviolable essence, uh, and that the, these are not merely characteristics that she's acquired with wealth, most significantly, she's the, she has Negro eyes and that they have been given to her, handed down by her grandmother and her mother and father. In other words, these are her African-American uh, relatives specifically. So these are inherited kind of essences, if you like. Um, moving swiftly uh, to the Rush Act. Um, and this is from a moment just after uh, Henry Martin has, um, has failed in his attempt to commit suicide. Um, and a voice, a voice says, this is Monsieur Moncton Smees. I forgot to say the book set in France. <laughs> That's right. Um, um, another, vous ne le dites pas. You don't say, I wish I had his money, but not at the moment his face. If he wasn't at the bottom of the Mediterranean, he was at the side of a road under some plain trees, and he had changed his identity. So immediately upon being, so this is, he's mistaken then for, for the other man, Hugh Moncton. Um, and immediately on being mistaken, he's thinking in terms of, of changing his identity, and money is already part of the equation. Um, then it is necessary, monsieur, that I, I get the gravel out of the wound, otherwise you will have a very great scar. Monsieur already has a very great and most honourable scar from a Bosch sabre. And this is um, to do, this is a reference to the fact that Hugh Moncton um, was injured in the First World War during a cavalry charge. He was, he, was, he was in a kind of cavalry charge in the early stages of the war when it was still possible to do honourable uh, things on the battlefield. Henry Martin writhed. He tried to say, You must not say that, but they were binding his jaw over his head with a lint bandage. After all, he had wished to be Hugh Moncton. Now he was. And this, is, this goes back to an earlier point in the book when the two have met in a bar on the evening before both planned to kill themselves and Henry, Henry Martin experiences a kind of intense desire to swap places with Hugh. And this is partly just then a sort of continuation of this wish fulfillment fantasy element of the book as a kind of fairy tale, like I said before. Um, however, this also opens up onto the question the novel asks about identity, about the self. Two important markers here of Hugh Moncton's identity are, the, are his money and also his scar. And if Henry Martin gets the money and he also has the scar, does this transform him into Hugh, especially if everybody else believes that that's who he is? Later, Henry Martin finds himself kind of just getting lost, losing himself in the character of Hugh Moncton. He had by now so identified himself with that poor dear fellow that the fellow in the blue uniform charging down on him on a Rowan charger was something that he might seem to see at any moment of the day in a sort of substituted memory. And he had called the hotel waiter Old Bean half a dozen times whenever he brought a meal. 
So he has a kind of substituted memory of the cavalry charge that, that I've just mentioned. That, so so he, um, he, he kind of almost has the memory himself of this cavalry charge in which Hugh Monkton was saying, sustained this sabre wound, and he finds himself saying Old Bean, which is a kind of favourite phrase of Hugh's, a bit like Jay Gatsby's Old Sport. Um, then finally, this last bit is just from very near the end of the book, and Henry is contemplating the kind of multiple identities then that he's, he's kind of inhabited and, and tries to make sense of them. The devil was, if you inherited half your blood from buccaneers and half from Fall River first families, over the body of Hugh Monkton, Henry Martin III, so he's kind of imagining a sort of multiple version, Henry Martin III had eventually triumphed over HMA, HMAS one and two. One was no doubt the normal Henry Martin of Fall River psychology. Two, which had wanted to take the passport for a, for a lark. This is what, so he switches passports when he finds the dead body of Hugh, and that's, that also enables this kind of uh, identity swap. Um, so he'd wanted to take the passport for a lark. Was father's project, the child of the wild boar of the Ardennes. But Henry Martin III, who had eventually won the day, had been the acquisitive instinct that I was, was at the bottom of both Luxembourg and Massachusetts, of the caveman that was at the bottom of all types. So again, sort of on, not unlike passing, I think, Ford's novel explores identities as, as discursively constructed, performed, open to negotiation, contestation, and creative reimagining, whilst, on the other hand, falling back on these ideas to do with blood, inheritance of types of people going all the way back to the caveman. So it's another kind of essentialist evolutionary myth. Um, so that's what I, I just want to finish with a couple of final thoughts. Um, one being that the first citation in the OED for this particular sense of passing, as defined as the fact of being accepted or representing oneself successfully as a member of a different ethnic, religious or sexual group, uh, is from 1926, the first, first citation, so it's possible, therefore, I think we could say that this particular idea of passing is a kind of modernist concept. Um, and then as a very, very final thought, um, as Elaine K. Ginsberg asserts in her introduction to Passing and the Fictions of Identity from 1996, both the process and the discourse of passing interrogate the ontology of identity categories and their construction. And then at the end, finally, allowing the possibility that maleness or whiteness or an ethnicity can be performed or enacted, donned or discarded, exposes the anxieties about status and hierarchy created by the potential of boundary trespassing. Um, and as Phil Armstrong and Kaleem Siddiqui have argued recently, modern monetary theory interrogates and critiques the orthodox understanding of the ontology of money. And I think that actually many of the uh, perhaps extreme reactions that, um, that people have to MMT are linked to the way that it too exposes these kind of multiple anxieties about status and hierarchy. And I suggest therefore that the tensions I've been pursuing in passing and in the Rash Act and in Keynes's comments on the chartalism are all kind of interconnected and pointing us in the kind of same direction. So. So, from one Bloomsbury monetary theorist to another, um, I'm going to be discussing Virginia Woolf and this paper I've titled Monetary Modernism in Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. To begin, I'll read, from, uh, I'll read a short epigraph from the book. So, Woolf writes, Money dignifies what is frivolous if unpaid for. As this conference has made quite clear to me, Writing about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own in any sort of unequivocal terms would be to betray the nuance of the text itself. There is much that could be and much that has been said about this book. Therefore, in line with Woolf's withholding, I will not be offering you what she writes as a, quote, nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. I won't give you a piece of gold with which you might do as you please. Instead, what I aim to do here today is explore what is perhaps a natural evolution of Wolf's primary concern in A Room of One's Own, namely, using the text as an essayistic investigation 
a kind of wading through of the questions of women and fiction, which we might now update and expand generally to more capacious intersection of oppressed groups while honoring her specific focus on historical forms of patriarchal subjugation, I wish to contribute to the prompt, introducing the question of modern monetary theory, or MMT, into Wolf's interrogation. In light of this introduction, attempting to hold close to Wolf's work, I will consider the question of A Room of One's Own and MMT as, in the voice of her analysis of women in fiction, quote, inextricably mixed together. Starting from the end, or perhaps the beginning, it will be necessary to work from Wolf's essential contention in A Room of One's Own. To be an artistic genius in the mold of Shakespeare, particularly as a member of a marginalized group, one needs at least 500 pounds a year and a room of one's own. Setting aside for a moment any critical judgment of her analysis of the prerequisites of artistic genius, which include a certain uninhibited incandescent openness to the reality of the world, I want to delve into the specific components of this underlying thesis. 500 pounds and a room of one's own. In perhaps the simplest terms, what she is describing is infrastructure. An artist requires housing, clothes, food, privacy, and time. Further, no one is just an artist. They need to be educated, socialized, and have their so-called talent nurtured. They also need an entire network of distribution, what in media studies we aptly call media infrastructures. All of this requires public policy, including the legal allocation of property rights, coordination rights, which include the right to create institutions with particular social functions, like a university, a firm, a charity, and so on, productive capacity, which we might regard as resources or labor for the creation of services and products, the creation of a unit of account, in this case, the pound or the dollar, a taxation system to guarantee public money receivability, and a payment system to facilitate the distribution of all aspects of the, of the system of money to anyone looking to redeem a pound anywhere within the pound's jurisdiction of receivability. Perhaps that is not so simple, but in the wake of these requirements, Wolf offer, offers us something of a demand. A demand for an equitable monetary and legal system that affords, through what we might playfully call a monetary politics of accreditation, participation in artistic practice to everyone. MMT shows that her world is technically feasible, with proper political prioritization, that most vexing question of collective democratic agency, we can produce that world if the biophysical inputs, the rooms, food, buildings, professors, clothes, books, etc., can themselves be produced. If the experience of pandemic monetary and fiscal policy in much of Europe and the United States has taught us anything, it is that there are simply no nominal budgetary roadblocks for that vision. It is one thing to utter those necessary words, however. Don't you see? It can be done. This is exactly how. And quite another to honor the complicated aesthetic, affective, and genealogical critique that is foundational in Wolf's exploration in A Room of One's Own. To do this, we must hear from her at length. In the following passage, she is conjuring an elite Oxbridge and explicating a particular genealogy of the patriarchal origins of British higher education. You'll have to forgive me, as an American sitting in Bristol, for feeling a heightened excitement in the resonant of her embodied essayistic exploration of this genealogy. So Wolf writes, and this is a quite a long quote, once presumably, this quadrangle, with its smooth lawns, its massive buildings, and the chapel itself was marsh too, where the grasses waved and the swine rooted. Teams of horses and oxen, I thought, must have hauled the stone in wagons from far countries, and then with infinite labor the gray blocks in whose shade I was now standing were poised in order, one on top of another. And then the painters brought their glass for the windows, and the masons were busy for centuries up on that roof with putty and cement, spade and trowel. Every Sunday, somebody must have poured gold and silver out of a leathern purse into their ancient fists, for they had beer and skittles, presumably, of an evening. An unending stream of gold and silver, I thought, must have flowed into this court perpetually to keep the stones coming and the masons working, to level, to ditch, to dig, and to drain. But it was then the age of faith, 
and money was poured liberally to set these stones on a deep foundation. And when the stones were raised, still more money was poured in from the coffers of kings and queens and great nobles to ensure that hymns should be sung here and scholars taught. Lands were granted, tithes were paid, and when the age of faith was over and the age of reason had come, still the same flow of gold and silver went on. Fellowships were founded, lectureships endowed, only the gold and silver flowed now, not from the coffers of kings, but from the chests of merchants and manufacturers, from the purses of men who had made, say, a fortune from industry, and returned in their wills a bounteous share of it to endow more chairs, more lectureships, more fellowships in the university where they had learned their craft. Hence the libraries and laboratories the observatories, the splendid equipment of costly and delicate instruments, which now stands on glass shelves, where centuries ago the grasses waved and the swine rooted. Certainly, as I strolled around the court, the foundation of gold and silver seemed deep enough. The pavement laid solidly over the wild grasses. This deep colonial and patriarchal foundation, quite literally beneath our feet, was made with money, so Wolf contends. It is solid, but necessarily indeterminate. However, with MMT's understanding of money in the forefront of our minds, the notion that money is neither a thing, nor simply a social relation of things, but rather a legal instrument that creatively mediates productive capacity and political agency, we might nestle our way into Wolf's genealogy and rest its indeterminacy open further. On the way, first we might ask, how does Wolf imagine money? And second, what is the metaphoricity of such imaginings? The answer to this first is simply that she imagines money in the form of the currency it embodies, gold and silver. As for metaphoricity, for Wolf, money pours, it flows, it comes from coffers, is spilled out of purses, is housed in chests. She writes of money as a thing, a very social thing, imbuing value in concrete, nobility, and facade. For her narrative, these money things are bound up in investment authority and so-called private accumulation. This definition of money, of economic history itself, is aligned with the classical understanding of money as ultimately finite and scarce, beginning outside of the public with barter and ultimately functioning as a medium of exchange in the markets that bubble up from that ground. In reality, a slippery necessity Wolf demands our uninhibited openness to, money is granted and endowed, just as she describes of lands and fellowships, or even a room of one's own as a piece of writing. Through the stroke of a pen, or the clacking of a keyboard or typewriter. In other words, money is a legally constructed relation of creative issuance and receivability all the way down, a form of writing and reading. Now, before I conclude, I'd like to circle back to the epigraph that began this paper, where Wolf writes that money functions to dignify what is frivolous. To dignify is from the Latin dignus and facare, and means to make proper or worthy. By taking this process of dignification and applying it to moneyness in general, we might overcome her understanding of money as purely gold or silver. Gold and silver, apart from being relatively rare and easily transferable, are frivolous. These metals have functions as metal, sure, but as money, they don't really very, do very much at all. They contain little intrinsic value in themselves. So what makes them currency? Well, gold becomes currency when it is stamped or minted. It becomes currency when it is dignified with the name of money. When Wolf speaks of money dignifying the frivolous, she is speaking of money passing on the dignity of its creation by a public authority, a passing on of its moneyness to an act in the world. In her case, this act is writing. Though when we think about money this way as a legal regime of credit and investment authority, the privatization of money and its supposed separation from the public
apart under Wolf's feet. Neither the deep foundation of patriarchy Wolf laments, nor money itself, is akin to self-subsisting concrete, even as patriarchs would insist on its intractable solidity. I might even risk the statement that money can dignify anew. In this legal relation of political proscription, MMT cracks open the concretization of historical oppression, demonstrating how the production of inequalities betray themselves from the outset. In this way, MMT opens up a transvaluative possibility along the many paths once trod exclusively by Wolf's Oxbridge Beatles. Quite literally, among other places, this transvaluation happens right here in university. In the wake of this opening, these problems remain deeply political, of course, but perhaps political in a specific and new way. We can afford her room and, and the stipend. We can afford her education. We can afford her dignity. The difficulties of democracy and the energies of reaction remain the obstacle. In some sense, this is not something you don't already know. But it is my hope that with the assistance of MMT, we might take these already known difficulties and strip them of their formal determinacy and internal resistance. As Wolf writes of a great writer's approach to the world, quote, the whole of the mind must lie wide open if we are to get the sense that the writer is communicating their experience with perfect fullness. There must be freedom and there must be peace, unquote. I suppose what I'm suggesting is that with MMT in the one hand and a room of one's own in the other, we can work toward a certain openness and peace with the problems that lay before us. At a minimum, when thinking personally, economically, or otherwise, our writing can have a better sense of the fullness of our possibility and the boundaries of our limits. With that, we might end with Wolf's words, quote, the writer must not look or question what is being done. Rather, they must pluck the petals from a rose or watch the swans float calmly down the river. Shallow words are never true, you're shallow.